You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, as we begin this morning, if you're the note-taking type, I want to give you two clusters of words, and I want you to write them down. And if you walk out of here remembering those two clusters of words, I think you'll be able to hang everything else I say on them. Okay, so these are the hooks uh, that you can carry with you. So first cluster, Holy Father, precious blood, future grace. Holy Father, precious blood, future grace. You can, you can see those ones. You heard them in the text. So we'll be able to hang some stuff on those. Second, maybe less obvious, passions, moods, elephants. Passions, moods, elephants. Okay, so those are the two clusters. Listen for them as we go. This morning's passage begins with the word, therefore, which connects it to the previous uh, verses, the beginning of chapter 1. So let's review briefly what we've seen in those first 12 verses. We've seen the central event in cosmic history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, verse 3. We see a crucial event in our personal history, being born again, verse 3. We've seen the crucial future event that brings together the cosmic and the personal. The last time, the revelation of Jesus Christ when we receive the imperishable inheritance being kept for us. That brings together the personal and the cosmic. Number four, we've seen the dominant note that our lives ought to strike. The dominant note. Living hope as we are guarded by God's power through faith in the midst of suffering so that we believe and rejoice with joy inexpressible because we are receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. The dominant note of our lives is joy in believing. Joy in believing in all circumstances. And then finally, the promise of that salvation, which we are obtaining in the Old Testament Scriptures, a promise that centered on the sufferings and the glories of Jesus and was directed for our good. That's what we've seen. Central event in cosmic history, crucial event in personal history, a future event that brings them together, the dominant note of joy in faith and the promise of that salvation in the Old Testament. So in light of all of that, Peter says, here's three things that you ought to do. There's three main exhortations in the passage that was just read, all in verses 13 to 17, okay? I want you to get the main ones. So there's a bunch of stuff in there, but there's three main things. Number one, set your hope fully on the grace that is coming. Set your hope fully on future grace. That's the first. Number two, Don't be conformed to former passions, but instead be holy. Don't be conformed, be holy. And number three, conduct yourselves with fear during your exile. Those are the three. Set your hope fully, don't be conformed, but be holy, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, woven into those exhortations and commands are a number of incentives for obedience, Reasons and motives for gladly living out God's Word. 
and this is important. This is important just in general as you think about reading your Bible. God doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us how to do it and why to do it so that we can do it. He doesn't just issue commands. He gives reasons and ways and sheds light on how it is that we can obey Him. And then beginning in verse 18, we have an extended, unfolding foundation for why we should heed those exhortations and commands. So there's, there's some that are woven in to verses 13 to 17, and then at the end he says, knowing, and then he's just off and running as he unfolds who Jesus is and what he has done. Okay, so set your hope fully, woven together with reasons and ways of obeying. Don't be conformed, but be holy, woven together with reasons for obeying. Conduct yourselves with fear, woven together with reasons for obeying. All leading to and culminating in deep reflection on who Jesus is and what He's done so that you can trust and obey Him. That's the basic structure of this passage. Now, to understand it more deeply, to get into some of those reasons, I want to ask two big questions, okay? Two big questions. What do we learn here about God, and what do we learn here about ourselves? Okay, so in, the, in light of that structure, what do we learn about God, what do we learn about ourselves? Number one, what do we learn about God? Two main things. Two main things about God. You can see them. Number one, God is holy. He's holy. And number two, God is a Father. God is holy, God is a Father. Remember, Holy Father. Unpack each of those a bit. Holiness, holiness is actually a really difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around, I think. I find it, there's some attributes of God that I find easy to explain. Faithfulness, I can get that one. I know what it means for someone to make a promise and to keep a promise. And therefore, I know what faithfulness means. But holiness is harder. Holiness at its most basic, if we read in our Old Testament, is something like set apart for a purpose. That's what holiness is. Set apart for a purpose. And so in the Old Testament, it's filled with holy places and holy objects and holy people, all set apart for a special purpose. But then it gets tricky because what does it mean when that's applied to God. Like, I, I can get, here's a building, not this, I mean, the building's holy because the people are there. That's the new covenant. The building is holy because the people are there. In the Old Testament, it was the building um, is holy, and that's why the people went. Okay, there's no special buildings anymore. But in the Old Testament, there was a special building set aside for God's purposes, a temple, and God was specially present. It was set apart. What does it mean to say that God is holy. Who's setting Him apart? And does somebody else give Him a purpose? That's why it's hard to understand the holiness of God. But here I think we can understand God's holiness along three basic lines. Number one, God is holy because He is utterly unique. There's no one like Him. He is absolutely Himself. Everything else is made, He was not made. Everything else is dependent, He is not dependent. Everything else has needs, He does not have needs. He is utterly and totally unique, and therefore, He's set apart, He's holy. 
Number two, God is holy because He is morally perfect. This is most often, I think, how the Bible uses this. He loves that which is lovable. He hates what is hateable. He values what is valuable. His nature and His mind and His will are all perfectly aligned. No turbulence. He has a complete unity of purpose and will, and He always acts with the utmost integrity and purity of a heart. And so because He values things in proportion to their value, He values Himself supremely. That's what it means for God to be holy. He loves what is supremely lovable, and He is supremely lovable. He is not an idolater. He puts no one above himself. He always acts to uphold and preserve his own worth and excellency. And because he does that with a unity of mind and an unswerving purpose, therefore, he's holy. Now, number three, we can bring those two together. Not only is he unique, and not only is he morally perfect, but he is uniquely morally perfect perfect. Okay, so you got to get this. There are holy angels, okay? Holy angels, bright ones, flaming ones, angels who never fell, never sinned, never swerved in their love and obedience to God. These angels are holy. They're set apart they're morally perfect. They have a unity of mind and will and purpose. They love what is lovable. But they didn't have to be. They might have fallen just like Satan and his angels did, and just like we did. They could have swerved. They didn't swerve. They're holy. But they could have swerved. God is unswervingly holy. Not only does He not change, He cannot change. There's no shadow of turning with Him. His holiness is an imperishable holiness. you got to get this. This is the sentence that struck me about trying to get what does God mean for God to be holy? God is so holy that even the holiest angels who never fell cover their faces in His presence as they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. you get that? Like, I get if we came into God's presence and it would be like, okay, I can't look. He's holy. But these are angels who never fell. They're perfect. They've had a unity of purpose. They've loved Him forever and they never turned aside and they come into His presence and they say, He's so unique, He's so morally perfect, we have to cover our faces as we cry, holy, holy, holy. God is holy. That's what we see in this passage. God is holy. But not only is He holy, second, He's a Father. We are His children. He loves and cares for us with a steady, stable, loving, tender presence. He's a good father. He's the kind of father who sets boundaries and then enforces them. He doesn't show partiality. He doesn't put his finger on the scales and 
He judges with right judgment. He looks at what we've done and he either says, good job, or why don't you do that again? Let's try it again. He's patient and he's long-suffering. He's firm and he's wise. He's a good father. And if his holiness accents that kind of untouchable separation of God from everything else, his fatherhood says, I am related to you. I'm your father. God is holy. God is father. And these two facts about God are woven into this passage so that they can help us obey these exhortations. And so one of the questions that we have to ask, this is my question, then we turn to ourselves. What does it look like to be holy as He is holy and to be obedient children of an impartial father? That's what the passage says. You see it there? Just make sure you see it. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's first. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. See that? So he's holy, you should be holy. He's your father, you should conduct yourself with fear. That's how God's holiness and God's fatherhood help us to obey. How? Let's press in there. In order to do that, we need to see a fact about ourselves that's in this passage. Two phrases stood out to me as I read it about us. Both of them having to do with what we were like prior to our conversion, prior to being born again. Here's the two phrases. Number one, passions of your former ignorance, futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Those two phrases. That that describes us. That's about us. That's who we are. So let's think about this idea of passions. What are passions? said that was one of the key words, right? Passions are our immediate and impulsive desires. That's what passions are. Words often, that word there is often translated in the Bible as desires, okay? And sometimes it can refer to good desires like, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. It's that word. My desire is to depart and be. That's a good desire. Or Jesus, or uh, Paul says, I eagerly desire to see you face to face. And don't we all, right? I eagerly desire to see you face to face. That's a good desire. But most often in the Bible, Passions or desires are negative and immoral. So let me give you a couple. Let me just walk through a few passages. You don't have to write these down. Just hear them. You can look them up online. They'll be in the manuscript later. Passions are associated with our bodies. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign in your body to make it… You obey the body's passions. The body has passions. Or actually in First Peter, you just jump over a chapter, chapter 2, verse 11. Somebody will preach on this in a couple weeks here. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now notice that. There's passions of the flesh and you have a soul. So there's some kind of soul thing and there's some kind of flesh thing that has passions and they're at war with one another. They can be at odds with one another. So, associated with our, with our bodies, with, with flesh. Number two, passions are often deceitful 
and lead us astray. Ephesians 4, 22, put off the old man which is corrupt through deceitful desires, deceitful passions. Or 2 Timothy 3, 6, just preached on this. We can be burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So passions are the sort of thing that you're trying to go that way, and passions kind of say, hey, come over here, and you start to wander. Number three, these desires, we can follow them, 2 Peter 3, 3, Ephesians 2, 3. We can be enslaved to these passions, Titus 3, 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, you can hear those words, enslaved to various passions and pleasures. Or even again, here in 1 Peter 4, if we skip ahead two chapters, turn the page, verses, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passage, passions, but for the will of God. So you can live for human passions or you can live for the will of God. There, there's things you can live for, be enslaved to, to follow them. And then finally, they're often included in lists of things. Passions, that word shows up in lists in the Bible, like 1 Peter 4.3 where it's listed with things like sensuality, sexual immorality, drunkenness, coveting. These are the sort of things that are associated with passion. So you begin to get the, the picture there? Passions are these immediate impulses and, and instinctive movements of our appetites. They're almost automatic. Okay, get, get this about these. They're almost like those, those knee-jerk responses to good things or bad things. So like, when you see something good, and there's sort of an immediate, I want that, that's a passion. If something bad happens to you, somebody makes a comment to you, and you immediately bow up, that's a passion. Something, something startles you, or you hear some bad news about what might happen next week, and you begin to get anxious, that's a passion. Okay? Your kids mouth off at you, and you immediately kind of get frustrated, that's a passion. Okay? These are the passions of of the soul, the passions of the flesh, flesh. They're the immediate impulsive movements of our appetites, like things like desire and anger and fear. And here's the thing about passions. All of them have a direction. They are always trying to take you somewhere. They have a trajectory. If you go with them, if you follow them, if you're led astray by them, then the way the Bible talks about that is you gratify or you indulge that passion. You, so the passion just, boom, there it is, and then you can say, I'm going to go with it. My mind's going to follow that passion, and so Paul can say things like this, make no provision for the flesh to gratify or indulge its desires, its passions. Or again, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not gratify or indulge the desires, the passions of the flesh. Okay? So here's the picture. Ideally, your passions, those instinctive, immediate movements, were meant to be governed by your mind. Your mind was meant to say, Is that a good, here's something desirable, shiny object, I want that. And your mind should go, it's not a good idea to chase that. And you just keep going along your merry way. Your mind was meant to govern your passions. Now, how does your mind govern your passions? Because your mind is governed by God. So, God governs you, and then you govern your passions. Does that make sense? That's how you were meant to be. That's how you were built. That's how you were designed. God over your mind, over your passions. Now, what happens after the fall? 
everything gets turned upside down. So now, instead of God governing you, which governs your passions, your passions govern you and God's out of the picture. Your passions become like your God. You chase them. You, you follow them. Or here in the passage, you become conformed to them. Does that make sense? You're conformed to your passions. Your passions are saying, come this way, and you say, I'm in. I'm going to follow it. Wherever our passions want to go, our minds follow, and we become enslaved, led astray. These are the futile and empty ways we've inherited from our forefathers. And, and here's the deal. This feels very natural to people. That's why Peter, in, in chapter 4, he's later going to say something like this. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, those outside the faith, what they want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and idolatry. And here, listen to this. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They're like, this is natural. This is normal. This flood of debauchery, this, this chasing your passion, totally normal. Why won't you come in? Why don't you plunge headlong into your desires? You're crazy. That's what it means to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. So then what does it mean to be holy? In light of that, if that's don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, be holy like He's holy, what would it mean? What would it look like? Okay, so remember, God's holiness is His unique moral perfection that means He's locked in total unity of mind and heart and nature so that He loves what is lovable and values what is valuable. There's a unity of will. So what would it look like for us to be holy like that, given how we're made? It would look like this. I'm going to say it a couple times here. It would mean, as obedient children, calling on their Father, conducting themselves with reverence and awe toward Him, as they soberly and intentionally set their hope on future grace, and remember what Jesus has done. That was a long sentence. I'm going to say it again. This is what it means. To be holy here, as God is holy, means as obedient children, calling on Him as your Father, who loves you and is fair and good, conducting yourselves with reverence and awe toward Him, because He's holy, as you roll up the sleeves of your mind and with great sobriety fix your eyes, set your hope on the future grace of Jesus, and you know deep in your bones, He bought me with His blood. He, there's an eternal plan that was designed and manifested in order to bring me to God. That's what it would mean to be holy like God is holy. Now, I can feel a little bit abstract to me, so I'm going to give some help from C.S. Lewis and then I have a story. Jonathan's usually one to tell stories, and I was like, I need to tell a story. So I'm going to tell a story here at the end of the sermon. But first, I'm going to go to C.S. Lewis, which is very much in my, in my lane. <laughs> so I want you to think about those three phrases. Go back to the very first. Look at those three phrases in verse 13. Okay, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the future grace. See those? That first phrase is literally girding up the loins of your mind, which everybody understands perfectly well. 
Girding up the loins of your mind. That's what I said a second ago, rolling up the sleeves of your mind, okay? You, someone would gird their loins when they were getting ready to run. It'd be like, you know, they have those big, um, uh, not togas, what's the word? Tunic. They had tunics. And tunics, you know, you can walk in them, but if it's time to run, your tunic's going to be flapping everywhere, and so you'd have to gird up the loins of your tunic, and you'd have to tie it around, right? You're going to get ready, okay? It's getting ready to do serious mental work, the kind of work that takes effort, Okay, so, so the work that he's talking about here is not roll out of your bed in your pajamas work. Okay, this is get your work clothes on. This is lace up your shoes. This is get your game face on type of work. It's mental work. Gird up the loins of your mind, okay? So roll up your sleeves. That's the first thing. Second, be sober is literally be sober. Like it's the opposite of drunkenness. That's normally where it's used. So what is, well, drunkenness, what does that mean? Well, Drunkenness impairs our perception, our judgment, our reaction times. And so the idea here is the opposite of that would be be alert, have a clarity of mind, a steadiness. So roll up the sleeves of your mind, get clear and steady, and then set your hope on Jesus. Set your hope on future grace. You've been born again to a living hope and imperishable inheritance. Now set your hope fully on that tidal wave of grace that's coming. Now, here's where C.S. Lewis is helpful to me. He says that the human mind, surprise, surprise, is not completely governed by reason. Right? Your, your reason doesn't govern your mind, uh, uh, your, your behavior. And therefore, you will not go on believing the things that you believe automatically. You won't. There's often a conflict between what we know to be true and what our emotions or our passions and our imaginations tell us is true. There's a conflict there. And so he, here's what Lewis, I'm going to quote him here. Once you've accepted the gospel, imagine a guy's accepted the gospel, here's what's going to happen. There will come a moment when there is bad news. Don't you think about that passions idea a minute, okay? Bad news, or he's in trouble, or is living among a lot of other people who don't believe the gospel. And all at once, his emotions, his passions, will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief, kind of make an attack on his belief. Or there will come a moment when he wants a woman or wants to tell a lie, or feels very pleased with himself, or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that's not perfectly fair. There will be some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and his desires, that's his passions, his impulsive, impulsive desires, will carry out a blitz. So I'm not he's not talking about like when you actually like came up with reasons that might Christianity might not be true. It's not that thing. I'm talking about moments when a mere mood rises against it. There's a second word. Passion's mood. So a mood rises against what you believe. And what Lewis says is faith, or what Peter here calls setting your hope fully, is the art of holding on to what you've believed in the face of your changing moods. That's what, faith, that's what faith is. That's what set your hope fully is. It means clinging to, I believe this, it's coming. Because my mood is attacking those passions are rising up and saying, conform yourself to me. And you're going, no, I'm girding up the loins of my mind and I'm ready. I'm going to cling to it. 
There's a kind of rebellion of mood against self, of passions against soul. It's like trying to ride an untamed elephant. Okay. That elephant is strong and powerful. That's not passions, right? Strong, powerful, lurches left, lurches right, goes for the banana, whatever. That's, that's the elephant. But if you roll up your sleeves and you stay clear-headed and steady, you can learn to ride that elephant. You can tell your moods where to get off. You could train your passions. We can recognize our moods change. We can bring the truths of the gospel before our mind every day. We can pray, calling on God as Father for help. And we can gather with other believers like this to encourage each other in the faith. That's how we roll up our sleeves and soberly set our hope on future grace. Now, here's the, I wanted to make this sticky, so I had a story. I worked hard on this, y'all. I just want you to know, most of my prep was this story. And I'm not sure it's very good. But we're going to do it anyway, okay? And, and the goal here is to give you some vocabulary, and especially perhaps you parents, to give you some vocabulary. I'm going to do it for the parents. I did this for the parents, for your kids. Um, so that you can know, how do I talk to my kids about their impulses and their passions and their desires? So you ready for the story? Here we go. This, is land, this will land the plane. Once there was a boy who was given an elephant for his birthday. It was a small elephant, for he was a small boy. His father was a great elephant lover, and he raised elephants in order to protect them from poachers who would kill them for their valuable ivory tusks. The father had 100 elephants on his elephant farm, and he loved them all, and he loved to tell his son about the wonders of elephants, their mammoth legs, their majestic trunks, their beautiful and precious tusks. Son, he would say, your elephant could be a great help and joy to this family one day, but only if he's carefully trained. Elephants are strong and powerful. They can carry heavy loads and pull heavy wagons and travel long distances with riders on their backs. But elephants are strong and powerful. They can tear up hedges and trample gardens and even knock down houses if they're not carefully trained. So the boy had his elephant, and like most little boys, this, this boy could be a bit lazy. And when he was lazy, he didn't train his elephant. And so the elephant would do what the elephant wanted. If the elephant saw a tasty fruit in the neighbor's tree, he would simply rumble across the yard and get it, tearing up the hedges and trampling the garden along the way. The neighbors did not appreciate this. If the elephant heard a loud noise, he would stampede down the street, ramming into cars and knocking over trash cans. Neighbors also did not appreciate that. And if anyone tried to tell the elephant no, the elephant would fall into a rage and stamp his mammoth legs and blow his majestic trunk and threaten with his precious tucks until he got what he wanted. And so the boy had his elephant. And like most little boys, this boy could also be a bit rotten. Sometimes while riding the elephant, he would deliberately trample the neighbor's garden just because he could. He would swat the elephant with a stick. So the elephant would stampede down the street, ramming into cars and knocking over trash cans. And if anyone tried to tell the little boy no, he would jump on his elephant and fall into a rage and lead the elephant to make a great commotion until he got what he wanted. And so the boy grew and the elephant grew until both of them were big and strong. But the boy, who was now more like a man, was still lazy and often rotten, and the elephant was still wild and unruly. 
And they were so out of control and reckless that they could no longer live in the house. And so the boy moved into a van down by the river. And the elephant slept under a grove of trees near the van down by the river. And the boy and the elephant spent their days trampling the gardens until there were no more flowers and stealing all of the neighbor's fruit until the trees in town were almost bare. Now, one day, the boy and the elephant woke up, and both of them wanted a piece of fruit. And so they searched together throughout the town until they found the last mango hanging from the last mango tree. The elephant wanted it. The boy wanted it. And since the boy was rotten and the elephant was unruly, neither was willing to share. And so they fought over the mango, and in the brawl, the elephant stepped on the mango and squashed it. This made the boy so mad that he took a large stick and hit the elephant on the backside. This made the elephant so mad that he stampeded down the street, ramming into cars and knocking over trash cans. Only this time, he didn't stop. The elephant was so enraged that he barreled his huge body all through the town. He knocked down the grocery store, the post office, the gas station, and the mayor's house. He even knocked the boy's van into the river. And when all was said and done, the elephant had destroyed more than half of his town with his mammoth legs and his majestic trunk and his beautiful and precious tusks. Now, because the elephant belonged to the boy, the boy was in big trouble. The town demanded that the boy pay for all the damage that his elephant had caused, not only to the buildings, but also to the gardens and the cars and the trees and the trash cans. And the judge of the town gave the boy one week to pay for all the damages, or else he would be thrown in jail and the elephant thrown into the zoo. But the boy didn't have the money to pay for such great damage. After all, he lived in a van down by the river. And so the boy felt hopeless and helpless. But the night before the money was due, the boy's father showed up. And his father told him that when the boy was young, he had seen how lazy and rotten the boy could be and how wild and unruly his elephant could be. And so the father had made a plan. He knew that someday the rotten boy and the unruly elephant would make just such a mess and now it was time to carry out the father's plan. And so the father brought his hundred elephants to the town square, and there he sawed off their beautiful and precious ivory tusks, and he sold them. And with the money, he paid the last of the boy's debts. And so the boy and his elephant were free. Even more, the father invited the boy and his elephant to move back into his home but only after the elephant was trained. And the father told the boy, if you ever need help to train the elephant, just remember me, call on me, I'll help you. And so the boy set to work. Every day he would roll up his sleeves and clear his mind and train that unruly elephant. He would teach him when to stop and when to go. He would teach him when to sit and when to stand up. No longer did the elephant do whatever he wanted. Of course, this was a lot of hard work, and the elephant didn't always obey. But whenever it got hard, the boy would call on his father for help. And he would look to the past, and he would remember what his father had paid. He would remember all of those tuskless elephants, and how much his father loved those elephants and wanted him to train his own. And he would look to the future, and he'd look forward to being welcomed back home, and he'd roll up his sleeves, and he'd clear his mind, and he'd train his elephant.
Now, the boy's father paid those debts with precious ivory tusks. In our passage, our father pays our debts and ransoms us with something even more precious. He pays with the precious blood of His beloved Son. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And this was the plan all along. Jesus was foreknown, chosen before the foundation of the world for this mission, and He was manifested at the right time for our sake so that through Him we might believe in God. And that blood of the lamb reminds us of Passover, when blood on doorposts saved God's people from the angel of death. It reminds us of the book of Leviticus with all of the spotless lambs and unblemished goats that were offered as sacrifices for sin. Like, it's a remarkable thing that you don't have to bring an animal to church and kill it on the front steps. Like, for most of the history of the people of God, like for most of it, the vast majority of it, okay, 4,000 years worth, something like that, 4,000 years, you wanted to come worship God, bring your goat and slit its throat on the front steps. And you just walked in here this morning like it was nothing. In the Old Testament, worship was a messy affair. Forgiveness was a bloody business. And someday we're actually going to explore the depths. We've talked as pastors. When we get through Exodus, Leviticus is next. For now, I just want to remind you of those two fundamental truths about God as we land here at the table. The spotless blood of Jesus was necessary for our ransom because God is uniquely and unchangeably holy. If the holy angels cover their face in His presence, unholy sinners can't even enter it, and yet enter we do because of the blood of Jesus. And Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world and made manifest for our salvation in the fullness of time because God is a loving Father and He's planned for our good. And so here at this table, we remember the price that was paid, not silver and gold, not ivory tusks, precious blood poured out for us to bring us to God, our holy and loving Father. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the pastors to come. And as we come around, I want you to remember to know, as Peter says, to know that you were ransomed not with perishable things, silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.